This is, I, I believe this is your fourth time with us, Paul, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And we actually, the very first time we had Paul was just after the book came out. So I don't know how many years ago that was, but quite a while ago, 10 years ago. Sounds about right. And um, I, I, I just have to tell you this. The, the first thing I want to say about Paul is this is one of the most genuine people I've ever met in my life. Who, who you, what you see is what you get, which is saying a lot because I see this man and I love him. Um, a different way I would say it is this. He is one of the simplest and most profound people I've ever met in my life. And both are true. He lives life simply, trusting in God just like a child as we should. And he finds himself being super profound and not because he's trying to, <laughs> but just because the Lord so freely moves through him. He's, he's so, so fun and, and genuine. Um, and the last thing I want to say about him before I call him up here, um, all right, I'm going to put a time out on that. I have these pictures up here, the shack. How, okay, did you all see the shack or, or read the book? Okay, so just about every person in this room. How about the heart of man? How many of you got to see that? So maybe about a third of you, it looks like. It is, see that, this movie. Uh, Paul plays a really big role in this movie. It's kind of a documentary and a um, parable at the same time. It is so good. And it's, as you can see, the, our brokenness is a bridge, not a barrier. It's about how God wants to take the shame off of us, especially with sexual brokenness. It's done so well. It is, it is people are so vulnerable in this movie. It's going to give you pr- pr- the opportunity to be free. So, um, so please, if you haven't seen it, it's on, it's on Amazon now. It's, I've, I've seen it on a bunch of things now. It might be on Netflix. I don't know. It's out now. So um, you can certainly buy it on, on Amazon or places like that. Anyway, uh, that was it. I, uh, the last thing I want to say about Paul is I, I just thought about this. I was saying, how do I want to introduce Paul? I, I, I see Paul as a true reformer. Um, we think of people like Martin Luther, you know, who, who came, at, people like him and others who came at certain points in history. And, and just because of who they were and their willingness to say yes to God created huge shifts on the earth. For, for Martin Luther, it was, it was that we get to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Paul brings the genuine love of God in such a way that's tangible, a God who appro- is approachable. And he's part of a huge shift on the earth, whether, whether he knows how much he's doing or not, he, he is part of this. But also, we have a tendency to romanticize the past and, and think, oh, Martin Luther, you know, everything was really great for him. No, actually, it was really hard for him because there were a lot of people that were very unhappy that there was a shift going on. And we're seeing that again today, But I, I, meaning there's a huge shift of the love, the things we were singing about tonight, the love of God, the goodness of God. The earth is shifting and believing how good God is, but not everybody's happy about that. I'm just telling you, but that shift is happening because God is having his way. He wants us to know he is a good, good father. And I, Paul, I just want to thank you for being an ambassador of love and for being a good friend. I really do love you. Would you please honor Paul Young? I like being up on stage because I'm so short. I'm just going to stick this stuff somewhere. Okay. The way Martin Luther dealt with it is that he drank a lot of beer. 
I have grandbabies. <laughs> Serious. We have twins coming next Friday if they don't show up before then. <clears throat> and they'll be number 11 and 12. So we've got 12 grandbabies this Christmas who are 10 years old and under. Come on. <clears throat> if, if that won't change your paradigm, I don't know what will. I tell you, um, there is a remarkable th- reality about being a grandparent. And um, it, it's kind of like when you didn't understand what it was like being a parent, but just multiplied. Uh, and I think the reason is, partly, is because hopefully by the time you're a grandparent, your kids have beat the snot out of your self-centeredness. <laughs> right? Because when you're a parent, it's still all about you. Especially the guys, you know, kids are interfering with your sleep and your, your work and your play. And, and uh, when you're a grandparent, if you've, if you've learned from your kids, then you're at a place where you get to be present in a way that you, you didn't have the capacity to be present with your own children. I'm a much better grandfather than I was a father. And my kids all know it. And, and we talk about it. And, and I love because there are, there are elements of healing that are happening for my kids because of the way that I'm able to love their kids. You know, it's remarkable. And, and plus, in, inside the shift that I've been on in, in my life over the last 20 years, 15, 20 years, it's been moving towards simplicity. It's not been moving toward complexity. Um, I was really stuck inside my head as an as a evangelical rationalist, you know, because that's where broken people, broken men particularly, go to hide is in their heads. And um, that's why the transformation ultimately becomes about the renewing of the mind. The heart has to grow in such a capacity that it challenges the darkness of the mind. And um, so a lot of us were we locked ourselves into our minds because it was the only place we felt we could control because a lot of us, everything below the head was broken. And, um, and I tell you that one of the greatest catalysts for transformation um, is relationship. I, was with, uh, I did a conference with Richard Rohr, if you know who Richard Rohr is, and we did a three-day conference with Cynthia Bougeau on the Trinity and uh, we did it in Albuquerque. We had about 2,000 people there. About 70% were Catholic. About 10% were disenfranchised evangelicals, and the rest were non-committeds. And, um, and I, t- I tell you, we had a fantastic time. And I was, uh, I was riding along the car with Richard, and Richard's a Kansas City farm boy who is surprised by what's happened in his world, just like I am about, you know, I wrote a story for my kids for Christmas and, you know, never intended it to be published. And look, God's sense of humor. Or, as I like to say, proof that God can still speak through Balaam's ass. Right? Glad somebody knows the Old Testament. So, so, uh, I'm riding along, and, and Richard says, you know, I got I to gotta tell you something. He says, this is a funny statement coming, odd funny, coming from a 
Kansas City farm boy who is a Franciscan monk uh, who is celibate, that is, committed to celibacy his whole life. And he said, uh, but I am absolutely convinced that one of the greatest gifts that God has given to humanity for creating an environment for transformation is marriage. He said, there is nothing that will expose your crap like being in a committed relationship, right? I'm serious. And, and, and it introduces ambiguity and a loss of control, right? Ask any married man. I mean, you, you, you entered a mystery and you lost control. And, um, and so relationship does this. Um, our, our kids, our grandkids... Um, I'm, because I'm so much more present, I, I get to learn so much more from them than I, I did with my children because I, I wasn't present to learn a lot of the things. And so as a grandparent, um, they've taught me and continue to teach me an awful lot. But they're no dummies either. And, and they know how to play the system early on. So Vivian is, uh, she'll be three in January. And um, so about six months ago, Um, she was playing a game with uh, Amy, who's our our daughter, who's 29, and uh, is actually in L.A. working on a sonogram technology degree. And and Amy is the the favorite aunt because she has time, right? And Vivian loves Amy, and uh, we have two daughters and four sons. So Lexi is Vivian's mom. So Vivian wanted to play It's Time to Go to Sleep, with Amy in the middle of the day. So um, she has a crib bed, and so she got Amy to climb inside the bed, and Lexi came and did the whole routine, you know, because everybody has a routine. So you sing the song, and you pray the prayer, and you, whatever your routine is, but her routine. And then Lexi, you know, pulled the blankets up over both of them, tucked them in, and then turned the light off, even though it's the middle of the day, and walked out and, and and shut the door. And they're laying there, and Vivian turns to Amy and says, Now we whine. <laughs> Mom, I need some water. Mom, you closed the door too much. Mom. And Amy's looking at her, is like, Now we whine? <laughs> so later she tells Lexi, right? And Lexi goes, Are you kidding me? You know, I've been having all these struggles putting her down at night, and it's been a whole understood game, and it's like, it's like she's let the cat out of the bag for all these little children who have been keeping this secret, right? Crazy. So last night, Vivian was over, uh, Lexi and Vivian were at our house, because uh, Josh is doing a, a tournament, a lacrosse tournament, Vivi, um, Lexi's husband, and... Um, so, but they got back to our house a little bit late. They'd been at a Christmas party for um, the sisters and, the, and uh, the aunts. And so they got back to our house about 11 o'clock, and Vivian was just ready to crash. Um, but she wanted me to, to lay next to her uh, as she fell asleep. And here I am. This is last night. And I'm laying here, and she's, her face is right here, and she takes my hand, and she just holds it up to her mouth. And she just falls asleep that way. And I'm thinking like, okay, I'm good like forever. (laughs) Just right here, like forever, 
right? And, and, you, and in that moment, you, you know that there is something that is so beautiful and tangible and real inside the mystery of this. You know, um, there's a lot of myths and things like that that I grew up with because I'm an evangelical. And um, <laughs> even worse, I'm a preacher's kid and a missionary kid. You know, that's why it took me 50 years to trust God, you know. And uh, so uh, there are, there's a lot of ways that we think about God that we framed within our, our need to control. And um, um, there, remember this verse, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it? A lot of us who are older know that verse very well. And it was, uh, it was the... Uh, it was the permission for abusive discipline. You know, train up a child in the way they should go. Right? And of course, you know, your parents knew the way they should, that you should go. Now, let me tell you, it doesn't work. Just, you know, if you, if you use this as a verse of discipline, it doesn't work. You know, you, you train up in the way they should go, they go every other way but that. And it's, it's just like where the law comes, sin abounds, right? So, but the Hebrew doesn't say that. And this taps into one of our myths. The Hebrew says, train up a child in their way, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. That's different. Every child has their way. We have 12 grandchildren. We had six kids, all of whom are absolutely different. You can't discipline them the same. You can't reward them the same. You can't, uh, you can't focus on the same projects in the same ways. They're different. And so part of the, the beauty of, of parenting is that you have an opportunity to, to have exposed to you this child's way. What is their way? And every single child has their way. And if you can train them according to their way, when they're old, they won't depart from it. Why would they? It's their way. <laughs> right? So, again, you have a little shift in terms of how we, how we think. We, th- we think of God as Father, but we use horrible language regarding God as Father. We really do. And we've so Christianized it or created religion around it that we don't even, we don't even question it. It's just like, oh... This is the way you talk about God as Father. And how many of you have used... You'll see the why. So, here's a problem. How many of you have heard, and I hear it, you know, that, that God wants to use you? Right? Or, or I want to be a tool used by God. How many of you as a grandparent would ever say to your grandchild, I can't wait for you to grow up so you can be a tool I can use? (laughs) Right? Doesn't that just pierce your heart? It's like, I would never say that. But, But we say that about God as Father. Why the disconnect here? Why do we such have an aberrant sense of the character of God that God would want you to become a tool that he can use? I was with a friend of mine who's an artist, and, and he's, he's like, I, and he said that. I can't wait to be a tool that God can use. Because he was saying, like, God is using you. And I'm going, like, he's the, he doesn't use me. I, I'm a sexual abuse survivor, right? Being used is not a good thing. 
And, and God is, is about relationship and love. This is about an invitation to participate. This is not about being used. Right? And I said to him, do you talk to your brushes this way? You, you know, your tools, right? You have a personal relationship with your tools. Like you talk to them and go like, Give them, let me tell you my problems. And what do they say to you? And he's going like, no. I'm going like, right, No. You don't have a relationship with tools. You use tools. Right? And so this is about what? Something other than a utilitarian sense of the character of God. And part of what's changing is that we're beginning to challenge the language and the assumptions that we've made. I have a friend who came up to me recently and said, how come I'm finding more goodness and love among atheists than among Christians? And I said, well, that's pretty easy. The atheists have had to find a reason to be moral that's within themselves, and the Christians have an external morality that they adapt to. Right? And so there is an integrity to an atheist that oftentimes is missing from a religious person because it comes from inside of them. Right? When you adapt an external religious morality then you're always at war with yourself to try to keep it. That's the law. Right? Atheism is halfway to Jesus from religion. Because frankly, as you grow in terms of your understanding of God, you've got to say that the God you thought existed doesn't. That you don't believe that in that God anymore. That's a Brian McLaren says that every real move toward authentic relationship with God has to take you through atheism. And not just once. You have to deny the God you once believed. Right? And atheists are believers anyway. They just don't, they just don't believe the magic stuff that Christians do. You know? And now, you have to understand, I love Jesus. In fact, I love the John passage that was read tonight. Because it says that that there's nobody who is not in Christ. And there's nobody separated from Christ. Right? Not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from him. We live and move and have our being in him. Everything is in him, through him, by him, for him, is sustained and held together in him. This is not a little Jesus. This is not the Jesus that is an afterthought to Adam's ability to screw up the entire universe. And Jesus isn't that powerful. He just wins a percentage. Adam breaks the whole universe, but Jesus only, only is able to redeem a few. Right? Romans 5 says that's not true. If, if Adam is able to do this, look at what Jesus is able to do. He's, he's way bigger than Adam. He's the creator. And everything moves and has its being in him. Nobody is not in Christ. You will not be to meet a person who's not in Christ. If you do... Either they lapse into non-being or you lapse into non-being. Right? Because everything is in him. Separation's not real. It's a myth. Nothing. You know, you've read the Romans 8 verses, right? About nothing can separate you from the love of God. And you, do you remember what's in the list? Not life and not death. That's in the list. Death can't separate you from the love of God. I mean, it says it in the last two verses of Romans 8. 
Death cannot separate. We've made death so powerful it has the ability to separate you from the love of God. But also it says not anything present and not anything future. That covers a lot. It also says not any created thing can separate you from the love of God. Now, if that doesn't mess with your cosmology, I don't know what will. But it kind of covers everything. There is nothing in there. So separation's not real, but it's real to us. And, and because we bring things to the table that have never existed in God. Right? God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all. First John. So where does darkness come from? From me. From you. Human beings who don't know who they are because they've turned away from a face-to-face relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have now cast a shadow that it can only happen if you turn away from light. And that shadow now becomes real to us and we define everything inside that. But God is not darkness. There is no darkness in God. God is light and in God there is no darkness at all in terms of his very being. What else is there not in God? Betrayal, abandonment, worry, anxiety, suffering. Suffering does not exist apart from our participation in the universe. There was no suffering between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? There was no turning the face away. There was no flinching. Inside the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is this mutual, great dance of other-centered, self-giving love. And yet God climbs into suffering because we brought it to the table. This is a God who suffers. Why? Because he doesn't do abandonment. This is why this is a God who climbs into your mess. Because he refuses to do abandonment. This is a God who suffers with us. In us, as us. There is no darkness we can bring to the table that God is not inside of with us. And there are situations that you and I go through that involve suffering. And there's this verse that says that somehow we are filling up the sufferings of Christ. That's a mystery. Why? Because this is a God who chooses to suffer on behalf of the one who suffers. And we get to participate in that. Because Christ in us is the hope of glory. And by the way, what's the definition of glory? I like, I like um, there's a book called All About Glory. Um, by a friend of mine whose name just solely... Do you remember Rod? He's Australian. Qualic. David Qualic. And he defines glory this way, which is, is accurate and to the Greek and everything else. But glory is the essential nature of a person, place, or thing. The essential nature of a person, place, or thing. So Jesus is the glory of the Father because he is an exact representation of the nature and character of the Father. So when we sing about 
be glorified and all that. We are saying be authentically, absolutely, according to your very nature and character. Right? It's very beautiful. And it's not like, oh, be full of light and effervescent and all that. It's like, no. No, be glorified. That is, the intention of God is for you to become fully human and fully authentic. You know why Jesus never sins? Because he doesn't want to become less human. Think about that. Jesus chooses not to sin because sin is a degradation of the wonder and the beauty of being human. God doesn't create anything that is not good. Right? Does God create not good? No. That means that God created you very good before anything got shadowed or broken. And that's the truth about you. You are made in the image of God and the likeness of God. This is why you can look inside yourself. What are the deepest longings of your heart? To be a betrayer? To be a liar? To be an adulterer? To be a murderer? Are those the deepest longings of your heart? No. The deepest longings of your heart are to be authentic, are to be honest, are to have integrity, to be faithful, to be kind, to be good. Why would they be the deepest longings of your heart? It's because you're made in the image and likeness of God. And guess what God is like? Good, kind, faithful, furious at everything that hurts the ones that he loves. Right? You're like that. You just don't know it. That's the blindness that our eyes need to be open to see. So we stop agreeing with the lies that have dominated the way that we think about ourselves. So it's, it's been quite a, quite a year. <laughs> Who would have thought 10 years ago when I'm cleaning toilets and shipping out soldering tips and I write a story for my kids for Christmas that I would end up here talking to you tonight. <laughs> it's just so crazy. Because um, I never had any concept of writing to publish a book. I wasn't intending to publish a book. It wasn't on the radar. It wasn't in the bucket list. It wasn't part of my destiny. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything. I was finally content. <laughs> and content meant I was comfortable inside my own skin, inside the circumstances that I was inside of. Right? And I was working three jobs. We lived in that 900 square foot little rental place on the corner of 12th Street. And Joy was a constant companion. And we had nothing. We had lost everything the year before. It's part of the healing process. One of the deepest fears in my life was the fear of financial insecurity. And there's nothing like losing everything to help heal you. <laughs> of the fear of financial insecurity. That's when you find out that the opposite of more is enough. And we'd been surrounded by enough our whole lives, but hadn't stayed present enough to know. We were always scrambling because of some fear-based, future-tripping imagination that didn't exist. And we'd finally got to the place, I finally got to the place where I was comfortable inside my own skin. It only took 50 years. 50 years. And not an easy journey. And I was like, great. I'm going to do this probably the rest of my life, 
you know, three different jobs. Kim got a job at the high school bakery. And our lives, my kids would tell you, and Kim would tell you that this was one of the best times of our lives, these two and a half years of, of nothing, right? But surrounded by enough. And, um, and here comes this crazy God sense of humor journey that's lived out one day's grace at a time. And I end up, you know, writing this story that then becomes this phenomenon that becomes other projects, it becomes a book. This year, not only did the movie come out, but uh, Restoring the Shack, the TBN series, came out. Lies We Believe About God came out, which got me in more trouble with my people. Um, (laughs) Finally, he's not hiding behind fiction. Okay. And... um, my people, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> I love my people. I don't want them left out of the wonder of this gospel either, right? And uh, I was telling somebody that I love the verse that just makes me laugh every time. Paul the Apostle writing to Timothy. Timothy, who has now got a church in Ephesus, a little community of believers, and, and already politics have entered into human relationships. Can you imagine that? And, uh, and so Paul is writing to encourage Timothy, and he says, Timothy, here is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance. I mean, this is real strong emphasis, right? This is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially believers, I mean, think about that. It's like Timothy. Just so you know, believers are included too. Right? Because the religious people have always had the biggest struggle about freedom than anybody. And um, so um, Lies We Believe came out, and then Heart of Man came out, and um, I got involved in all these really incredible kisses of grace, like the Richard Rohr Conference, like uh, Oprah's Super Soul Sunday which I don't know if you've seen or not, but oh my gosh. Didn't it turn out like unbelievably beautiful? And when you, uh, when you meet Oprah the first time, you're actually on camera because she will not meet you before you're on camera. And she does it because she wants everything to be in the moment, right? So you don't see anything that's rehearsed. You, you meet her. You, you're, you're inside this little tent and you can't, you know, you can kind of peek through and see her, but she can't see you. And then they start the camera rolling, and then you go out and you meet her, which is so cool. Fantastic human being, uh, a gift to the planet. And um, um, then uh, inside of a, a whole lot of travel, because it's been a pretty intense year, um, so, some amazing, wonderful, grace-filled stories happen, which I, we're surrounded by them. Everybody in here is a story. You know, you are a story. And your story matters. I, I tell people all the time, this is why I think eternity will take so long. Because <laughs> we're going to unravel the threads. You know? And you know what we're going to find out? That there's some blue-haired old lady in Middleton, Missouri or Kansas or Nebraska somewhere who was, who was praying... And it ended up being the catalyst that started this whole thing with the shack. You know, we're going to find some thread somewhere 
that, that link so many stories that we don't even know about. And, I, and, and, and it'll be incredible, right? And it's going to take us like a bazillion years to go like, oh my gosh, so you're, you, um, really? And, you know, because the choices we make are so powerful, they'll ripple out through eternity. And God is big enough to keep track of it. And it's like unbelievably beautiful. And, and we're in the middle of that. They did, um, the, I haven't talked about this for a long time. They did this study. And um, I love psychological studies. They get grants to do stuff that you never think of. Somebody thought of it, you know, and thought, hey, let's do this. So they took, um, they took these monkeys because, you know, I don't know what it is about monkeys, but they say they're a lot like us. So, so they took these monkeys and they, the, they did it with the, I think the Navy did it the first time and then it was repeated by a major university. But, um, and the Navy used as a deterrent, they used water. So they used, they'd spray the monkeys with water. But, but this, the university study used shock collars, you know, shock collars, right? And they, they're not, they don't hurt the animal, but they are jolting enough to get the attention of the animal. And it becomes a deterrent. Like, I don't like that feeling. I'm not going to do that anymore. Right? That kind of thing. And uh, sounds like disciplining children, actually. And uh, <laughs> the way a lot of us grew up with it. So, um, so they built a, a, a big, huge, they created this big, huge room, and they built this platform on it. And, and they, on the top of the platform, um, they hung uh, something, and it had a banana on it. Right? And they introduced five monkeys into this enclosure and didn't tell them that there was a banana up there. So eventually one of the monkeys spots the banana. And if you know anything about monkeys, banana is their, that's their worldview. Right? <laughs> their whole worldview is like banana. So a monkey goes up and grabs the banana and as soon as he grabs the banana, they shock the other four. Who would think of that? Right? Like, Let's shock the other four and see what happens. So they shock the other four. So one monkey's eating a banana, and the other four is, what the hell just happened, you know? <laughs> like, and they put another banana out there, and soon one of the monkeys goes up, grabs it, they shock the other four. Now the monkeys are starting to figure it out. So the next time a monkey edges towards the new banana, there's four monkeys going like, don't be touching that banana. Right? And pretty soon, all the monkeys are wary of each other. None of them are touching the banana. And, and the, you know, I guess they're bored or something, the, the scientists. So they go like, let's try something else. So they take one of the, they, they take one of the shock collar monkeys out and introduce a new monkey with no shock collar on it. And as soon as the new monkey sees the banana, he goes for it. And suddenly in front of him are four monkeys going like, uh-uh. And he's going like, we're monkeys. That's a banana. What's your problem? But they won't let him touch the banana, right? After a while, he adapts. So they take another shock collar monkey, 
put in a new monkey that has no shock collar, and as soon as he sees the banana, he goes for it, and he ends, there's four monkeys in front of him going like, no, three of them are going like, we know why, one monkey's going, have no clue why I'm saying you can't have it, but if I can't have it, you can't have it either, right? Eventually, they've taken all the shock collar monkeys out, and they have four monkeys and a new one comes in goes for the banana and four monkeys stand in front going like we have no idea but you cannot touch that banana this is called tradition <laughs> i had a i had a uh, i was in a conversation with a theologian and i changed the whole thing and i said there were these five theologians <laughs> and and one of them heard the spirit of god and it shocked the other four you know <laughs> so now i love theologians i'm glad that some of these people spend their whole lives working on one word so i don't have to you know it's awesome and um and i do i do love theology really deep kind of theology stuff but um so yeah, we, we have ways that we've been taught that are so dominating that we don't know how to think outside of them, right? And that involves all kinds of things. Remember when it says that Jesus went around the countryside, he went from city to town speaking the good news of the kingdom, right? And this is part of the conversation that's going to emerge, And unfortunately, we still have kingdom attached to all kinds of hierarchical king-surf kinds of power structures, right? But when Jesus comes as the king of this kingdom, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. He comes as a baby, right? He comes totally submitted to all the craziness of humanity. And he lives a life of other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love. And that doesn't play well in nationalistic politics. Right? But the kingdoms of this world, remember when, he's, when he is before Pilate and Pilate's going like, so are you a king? What does he say? I am. But not of this world or else my servants would be fighting. Like you, all you guys, you fight, right? But I'm part of a kingdom that refuses to fight like this. We don't do this. So part of what's happening on the planet is that you're, you're feeling the loss of the divisions that we have, ex, have set up on the, in the world. Political divisions, economic divisions, gender divisions, um, racial divisions, ethnic divisions, because there's really only one human race. But, but um, we have all these divisions that are shaking because the systems that have maintained those divisions are starting to be penetrated by the kingdom of God. And, and part of our problem is, is that us religious people, us religious Christians, want to hold on to both. We want to hold on to the kingdoms of the world that give us a sense of certainty so we don't actually have to trust God, right? And yet say that we trust God. You know, we'd rather at least worry about stuff because then we're doing something. Okay. 
And we would rather be in a fight about our politics because we think that's where our certainty comes from. Remember when Daniel was given the prophecy about all these, um, these different animals? It was one of the prophecies. And then the same picture, but different picture of a statue with all the different parts of the statue. And a stone shows up, uncut by human hands, that begins to grow and it comes down, smashes the kingdoms of the world, and the stone begins to grow and grow until it covers the entire planet. That's the kingdom. Right? So part of our conversation is going to be like, how do we be part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, and not a part of the systems of the world? That's a coming conversation, and it really drives nationalistic, patriotic people nuts because it's going to challenge some of the core fears that they have in their life, right? And some of the assumptions that they make. And if you don't think that these assumptions are powerful... Let me give you an illustration of how powerful a paradigm is. And a paradigm is akin to a pair of glasses that you see the world through, right? You wear a pair of glasses because of your family history, because of your your ethnicity, because of your um, genetics, because of of the environment that you grew up in, because of the abuse you experienced, all kinds of things. And you wear a pair of glasses. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to... Heal your eyes so that you can see the reality that you're a part of, not the lies that make up the paradigm, the pair of glasses. And I love this illustration. It's a little bit blatant and in your face, but it's a very powerful one. And uh, I have a friend, uh, a gal, who came through unbelievable trauma as a child. And, um, And you know that when you've experienced abuse, you, you carry it in your body, you know? And yes, there is a process in which the healing happens so that you no longer, it no longer resides in your physical mortality. It actually gets to be released. And, and people who have been bowed down by shame and loss, they begin to lift their heads up, you know, because shame always drives your face to the ground. It's just what it does. Shame is different than guilt. Guilt is I've done something wrong, right? Shame is I am something wrong. Guilt, guilt has a legit place to play in our lives because we do things wrong. We hurt people. But shame has no place in the kingdom of God. There was never any shame inside the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And shame is I am something wrong. It is one of the most fundamental core lies of our existence. We're a piece of crap. <laughs> That's the lie. And, um, and so shame, shame and, and driving your face to the ground is, is a visceral way to isolate yourself. Right? The movement is away from relationship. To lift your face and look into the eyes, you, are, you have to deal with a person. But when your face is driven to the ground and you cannot look up, it is you are isolating yourself. And that's something that, that lies and shame and brokenness does, right? We're created in the image of a God who's never been alone. That's the beauty of the Trinity, right? This God has never been alone. And you're made in the image and likeness of God. So guess what? Aloneness does not originate in God. And in fact, it's not even real. Just like darkness is not real, death is not real, It's real to us because it's an expression of the darkness 
and we've now defined the universe through it. Right? Darkness is not real. You know darkness is not real. Uh, light has speed, it has wave, it has particle. Darkness doesn't have anything. It's simply the absence of light. So you can have light without any darkness, but you can't have darkness without light. Light has to be there before darkness can exist. Exist, not a good word. But you get the idea. Freedom can be there without bondage, but bondage can't be there without freedom. Right? Wholeness can be there without brokenness, but brokenness can't be there without wholeness. The I am not, I am not smart enough, I'm not wise enough, I'm not skinny enough, I'm not uh, a boy, I'm not, whatever your I am nots are. I am nots cannot exist with their, without their being first an I am. Right? So anything that is not truly real, goodness, evil is just the absence of goodness. You can have goodness without evil, obviously. It exists in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit prior to creation. Right? But you can't have evil without goodness. So you have this, this juxtaposition. So I have a friend who's, who is, she's, she is working out the process of the healing of her heart that is, is impacting her physical being. And it takes time. You can't, we are so incredibly crafted that we cannot be quickly fixed or healed. You know, we're never a, a project for God. We're a relationship to be loved. And God doesn't stick you on our timetable or your own timetable. God knows how to unravel how you've been broken and the intricacies of that in such a way that the process doesn't hurt you more. Right? It does hurt, let me tell you. The process of coming to healing, process of dealing with your stuff, coming out of the darkness, letting go of the need to be broken, you know, which is a big one. Remember Jesus is always asking people, do you want to be healed? I'm paralyzed. What do you think? You know, can't you see? Of course I can see, but that's not the question. Sometimes we don't want to be healed. We want to look like we want to be healed, but we don't want to be healed. Because we are so used to being broken that that is now how we think of ourselves. And we, frankly, don't know how to live apart from that brokenness or apart from that inability to forgive or apart from that bitterness or apart from the way we've been bent and broken. You understand? And so Jesus wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to heal you. It's like, what do you want? Because they need to participate. God will not heal you apart from your participation. So... My friend, her eyes are to the ground. She comes to talk to me because I just talked about the power of paradigms. And she said, let me give you an example of how powerful a paradigm is. She said, my entire childhood, I prayed to God every day as a child. From the time I can remember, whether I was three, four, five, for years. And I had one major prayer request to God. I prayed every night, God, would you please change the color of my eyes to blue? And she says, here's why. My dad was a drunk, and a mean drunk, and he got drunk almost every night. And when he got drunk, he would start saying terrible things to me. He would tell me how ugly I was. And he would tell me over and over, he said, you are so ugly that your eyes are just the color of cat shit. 
And so I prayed to God, please, God, change the color of my eyes to blue. Because she thought, if God could just change the color of my eyes to blue, then my dad might love me. This was two years ago. She looks up at me. She says, Paul, what are the color of my eyes? And I'm looking into two of the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. And I'm thinking like, God changed the color of her eyes? You know, because God can do stuff like that. She said, they were always this color, but I didn't know it until I was in my 30s. That is the power of a paradigm. Right? That when she looked in the mirror, she saw the color of cat shit. And her eyes had always been blue. That is the power of the things that wrap themselves inside of our mind. This is part of the conflict that's happened for my people with the shack and other things that I've written, is that their hearts leaped and then their heads shut it down. And it's like, I can't really believe that God could be this good. You know? I have, I have emails from my people and they say, what if I take the risk of trusting that God is this good and you're wrong? Do you understand the heartbreak behind that? My thought is, you know, you want to grow, you want to spend eternity with that God. And it's like, no, I don't have to spend eternity with that God. I'll spend it with Jesus, you know, because Jesus came to save me from that God. It's exactly right. That's how a lot of us grew up. We have a gospel where Jesus comes to save us from God the Father because somehow they're different. God the Father needs sacrifice. God the Father needs to be appeased. God the Father is just and righteous and all these things and holy. And so Jesus comes to cover me with his righteousness so that God the Father doesn't know what a piece of crap I am. Right? I don't know about you, but I grew up that way. It wasn't quite explained to me that way. But that's, that's the impact. And, God, and Jesus comes and says, look, I'm here to tell you, I'm, I'm here not to change God's mind about you. I'm here to change your mind about God. And I've been watching this. So, so I was at, we did a screening in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's a, and it was for Kojic. Anybody know Kojic? Church of God in Christ. Largest African-American denomination in the world. And, uh, and we, did it, we did a screening. It was the only screening we did outside of a movie theater. It was done in a big ballroom at a national leadership conference. We had like three, four hundred, five hundred Kojic leaders from all over the country or the world. And Bishop Blake was there. And um, talk about a sweet man. Oh, my gosh. But anyway, so, so I don't know, um, but I'd much rather watch a movie with the African-American community than, you know, ex-Europeans. And, uh, <laughs> right? And, and being black myself, it, I'm, I feel right at home. You know, so people laugh, but I grew up in a tribal culture in the highlands of New Guinea and didn't know until I was six years old that I was white. And it was a huge disappointment. And I'm, I'm still a little bit ticked off about it. So, so uh, because when you watch a movie, they don't hide stuff like we do, right? It's like, oh, ah, oh, ooh, 
you hear it all over. It's like popcorn. Boom, boom. Like, like that'll preach, right? You hear, it's just the best. Come on. Yeah. And they're interacting. They're not like trying to stifle stuff. So when they cry, you can hear them. You know, so we do this screening, which here was the miracle. First time in the history of Kojic that they allowed a picture show to be showed at one of their conferences. And it's the shack, right? And I mean, the, the ripples of this, you could, it was, the whole evening was just lit up. So we, I did a Q&R, uh, question and response time. I don't do Q&A because I'm a Canadian. And uh, I, do, I do do Q&A, questions and apologies, right? <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. You've, no, I won't even go there. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever. So if I was an American, I'd probably do Q&A. So um, uh, it's, actually, I'm a dual citizen now, so I don't really have an excuse, but I like to be Canadian. You know, it's like being a Christian. I only, I'm only a Christian when I have to. And um, I mean, think about that. Christianity has become a religion, not a relationship with Jesus, right? And so I, I'm only a Christian when I have to be, like Paul was only a Roman when he needed to be, right? So I'm a Christian when I need to be. And, and otherwise, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm, but there are situations, especially with my people, where I need to be a Christian. And, and I am one, right? Do you understand? It's like Paul needs to be a Roman. And um, so, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to help you shift a little bit in your thinking. But this is, all about, this is all about Jesus. This is all about not a little Jesus. This is about a Jesus who is the creator of the entire cosmos. And in him we move and live and have our being Jesus. This is a Jesus who is not just an afterthought to Adam's ability to screw up the universe. This is a Jesus who is much bigger. I mean, there's no comparison, Right? Kojic. That's Kojic. Right? Come on. I have a friend of mine named Renee Greenwich who I built the persona for Papa off of for the shack. Renee is a large black African-American woman and she's my friend. She, she, she about four years now, she, she slipped through, she went to sleep, right? She slipped through the veil. So she's now part of the great cloud of witnesses and I'm sure she's very aware of us gathering here today. And, uh, but Renee, I was visiting her one time, um, one time, uh, and she was in a care facility. And uh, she says, Paul, because she and I were on staff, only time I ever worked for a, an institutional religious system. Um, not that I wouldn't, if the Holy Spirit said to, I absolutely would. So just understand. Um, freedom means that uh, you, can, you can be in it and not of it, Right? Because we're surrounded by systems. It's like, where are you going to go? And um, so, you know, the Lord said, go join the Jehovah Witness group down the street. I would. I'd be a lousy Jehovah Witness. But I'm a lousy Christian. So, <laughs> so I'm, with, I'm with Renee and she says, Paul, how come you and I were always friends? I said, that's easy. We were the only two black people in that white church. <laughs> she goes, you're right. You're right. That reminded me of Renee. God, I love her. So, um, hmm. 
I'm missing her, you know? So, um, so we have the Q&R, and then um, I had a book signing thing, and people would come by, and, and I hug everybody, as you know. And, um, um, and a, a large gentleman, uh, older man, big man, six, probably 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I used to be 6'5", but I played rugby. <laughs> yeah. I was a hooker. That's a position in rugby. Right? And if, if you're a good rugby team, you go through two or three hookers in a season. It's like, so I have a friend of mine who played 25 years semi-professional rugby, and he always introduced me as, this is Paul, my Canadian hooker. You know? So... But anyway, this guy was tall, and he sort, of, he sort of engulfed me in his embrace, and he's emotional. And he whispers in my ear, I can't believe it's taken a movie to heal me from the guilt that I've been under for 10 years. I go, what's going on? He said, my name is Kevlin Jones, and I'm married to Joyce Jones. And... I'm a pastor in Flint, Michigan. And in the last 10 years, we've lost two of our daughters, both in their 20s. Most recently, he said, was a couple years ago, daughter climbing the corporate ladder, doing great, gets sick. And we think it had something to do with the water in Flint, Michigan. And we did everything to try to save her life, and we weren't able to do it. But 10 years ago, we had a daughter who was wayward, rebellious and we were in this cycle where she would call for help and we'd help her and then she'd push us away and then she'd call for help and we'd help her and she'd push us away and one night she calls for help she needs help moving and I had church things to do that night so I pushed her away and that night while she was moving she was brutally raped and murdered in tears I can't believe it's taken a movie to free me from the guilt that I've been under for 10 years. He said, I know I've been poisoning all my people because I haven't been able to forgive myself. And you know, forgiving yourself is the hardest forgiveness journey that there is. And and let me say this before I forget, because I think it's important. If I could go back and change things that I did and the ways that I hurt people, if I could change one of them, and it would cost me the shack and all this notoriety and all this other smoke and mirror stuff, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I'd go back. I got lots of regrets. But I've learned how to live with regret as part of grief, not part of shame. You hear me? There is a way to live with regret that is not part of shame, but it lets you grieve. And we don't grieve or lament very well in this culture. So I'm like blown away by Kevlin. And he said, my wife's here somewhere, but I didn't get a chance to meet her, Joyce. And there are three Duffy siblings, Michelle Duffy and her brothers, who organized this whole event in Little Rock. And um, they came to me at the end of the evening. And Michelle says, Paul, 
we were doing these exit interviews. This is one of the reasons you do a screening, so that you can do exit interviews. She said, we were doing these exit interviews, and we ended up interviewing this couple from Flint, Michigan, uh, a pastor named Kevlin Jones and his wife, Joyce. She said, Paul, they completely fell apart as they told their story on camera. And she said, let me tell you, if this movie was only for them, it's enough. Right? It's enough. So this whole day, this whole day that I'm in Little Rock and with Kojic and all this, it's one of those days where everything feels choreographed. Right? There are some days where it's like, I could say Kleenex and people would be slain in the spirit. Right? I mean, and I don't even come from a tradition that believed that stuff. Right? It's just like, I'm caught inside a flow of something that is very focused inside this day. And I, I was feeling it this day, this whole day. Everything that happened, every context, every person that I met, it was just extraordinary. And um, so they gave me a ride to the airport because I'm flying through Atlanta back to Portland, Oregon. And um, I'm flying Delta, and I get lots of times where I fly so much Delta that I get bumped up to first class because it's, you know, it's one of those privileges you get if you fly too much. And, and it's like, oh, we feel bad for you, so, you know. So, uh, so, but I didn't. And so I'm sitting there in the waiting room. Call it the waiting room? Kinda, it's kind of like a waiting room, you know, after you fly a lot. And, uh, but I'm, I'm there, and I look up, and on the board it says, 46 people on standby, 16 seats available. Right? So I know, and they announce it, everybody, this is a packed plane. Right? So there's going to be lots of people. And it's a big plane. It's not a little one. Because uh, I've been out of Little Rock before on these little tiny ones. But this has got, in the main section, is three and three. So it's a big plane. And, um, and I'm sitting on 10A, which is on the window, because I like the window, because I can fall asleep. And I can look out the window. I still like looking out the window. And um, so, um, um, but I'm thinking, I wonder who am I going to sit next to? I just like, this whole day's been like this, you know? I wonder what's going to happen. So I'm coming down the aisle to get to 10A, and the woman on, on 9C, which is on the, on the aisle, right in front, she goes, Paul! She was at the Kojic conference, and everybody at the Kojic conference got a copy of the shack, and she's like, look, I'm halfway through chapter one, right? And she gives me a big hug, and uh, her name's Pam. So I slip in, and I'm on the window, and I'm, everybody starts piling in, because I got to go on early, because, you know, all the miles. And um, so people start coming onto the flight, and it fills up. Guy sits on the aisle. Nobody's sitting next to me. And I keep watching. People pass, people pass. Right before they close the door, a woman gets on, and she looks harried a little bit, and she's got three bags, and she's kind of coming up. The, I don't know who she is. But Pam knows who she is, right? And um, um, so she gets settled next to me. So the last, and they shut the door. The last person to get on is this woman. And she comes, sits next to me. And Pam looks through the seats at her and says, you've got the best seat in the house. And this woman turns to her like, what? And she goes, that's Paul Young, the author of The Shack. And this woman turns to me and melts. It's Joyce Jones. One seat came open, and Kevlin insisted 
that Joyce take it, that he would catch up to her in Atlanta, rather than both of them wait and be first on standby on the next flight. And so Joyce, the last person to get on the flight, comes to sit next to me. And for an hour, we're able to just process her story and walk it out. And it's like, come on. I have a son who's got a PhD in statistics. I would tell him a story like this and say, Chad, what are the chances? <laughs> and he laughs he, every time. He, he smiles and he goes, Dad, 100%. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> So, I fly back to Portland, and two days later, I get a phone call from Kevlin. And Kevlin says, Paul, I want you to know that for the first time in 10 years, Joyce has slept for two nights in a row without nightmares. And I have slept without any guilt. He says, this changes everything. This will change my community. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. You know, it, I think some of us get forgiveness and reconciliation confused. And because we get it confused, we get revolving cycles of abusive relationships. Because they're not the same thing. Forgiveness, people have asked me this about the movie and they've asked me this about the book. In the movie and the book, you never see the perpetrator's face. And the question is, Why? And my answer is because you don't need a face for forgiveness. Because a lot of people who hurt you, you don't have a face for them. You know? And and if you're waiting to forgive someone until they change, good luck with that. Right? Forgiveness has got nothing to do with the other person other than the fact that they've hurt you. Forgiveness has everything to do with you letting go of of their throat. Forgiveness is about your freedom, not theirs, right? Forgiveness is the corpse that we carry on our backs and poison all of our relationships because we can't let it go. And a lot of us have become so comfortable with that corpse that we don't know how to live without it. Forgiveness does not require a face. Some of the people who hurt you, they don't live. They're not alive anymore. And a lot of them don't care. They don't care. And at some point, you have to have a conversation between you and God. And it always is good to involve your community of people in this conversation where you forgive them. And it's not just an event. It's a process. I still get triggered by something and up comes some deep place where this happened. My mom turned 90 this year. And I'm driving away from her birthday. And suddenly I'm filled with this fury. My focus has been on my dad, who beat the crap out of me growing up, right? Because he didn't know what to do with his anger. I didn't know that he was broken, right? I just knew that he was the righteous man who was the only one allowed to be angry, right? I didn't know how to process that. I just knew he terrified me. I wanted nothing to do with him. If I hadn't processed some of the depth of where was my mom, I have all these memories of my dad. I have none of my mom. She was a follower, she just caved, right? And this was, this was this year that another piece of this comes up and I got I to gotta say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And it, 
What used to take me six months takes me about six minutes or six hours now, which is evidence of the healing in my life. And, um, but reconciliation is different. Reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. That takes time. And the person who has been hurt, the victim, never has to reconcile. The Holy Spirit's always working toward reconciliation, so let me tell you, it's an issue. But the perpetrator never has a right to expect or demand reconciliation or to put a timetable on it. You can forgive someone and never trust them the rest of your life. That has to be true. Because just, see, this is where we get confused. We think that when you forgive someone, you got to like them or you got to trust them. No, you don't. This is why boundaries are really important. You can forgive someone and have really good boundaries. And let me tell you, the Holy Spirit will work inside of whatever you bring to the table and whatever has been done to you. But reconciliation is not required or demanded. For reconciliation to be even possible, the perpetrator has to own what they've done. I mean, own it. And they have to confess it specifically, not in generalities. They have to ask for forgiveness specifically, not in generalities. And they have to change over time. They have to live a life that is visible and exposed so that the possibility of trust happens. I broke my marriage. And so a lot of you know my story if you've watched Restoring the Shack and all that, and even Heart of Man. I broke it. It took Kim and I 11 years to reconcile. I never thought it would ever happen. When it happens, it's an absolute miracle. Kim and I are today the best we've ever been. Right? That doesn't say, and I did it through adultery. Right? I got caught. She caught me. Uh, Three-month affair with one of her best friends in 94. I still deal with the consequences. That's part of owning what you've done. Right? I hurt people, and some of those relationships are not reconciled. Uh, I just live inside that loss, trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work. Right? Because the Holy Spirit is a redeeming genius. So reconciliation and forgiveness. Don't confuse the two. Forgiveness frees you. It does something for the other that I don't even begin to understand. It's powerful. When Jesus says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it'll be moved. You know what the context of that is? Forgiveness. This is where Peter says, what? We got to forgive, you know, how many times? He says, 70 times 7, which is like infinite, infinite. He says, this is impossible. He says, yeah, with man. You know, but you're not doing this alone. There's a God who's involved in this. So forgiveness, you can do this. You can forgive. Yeah, but then I'll have to let go of those memories that keep me comfortable at night when I get all angry and ticked off. Right? They keep me company. Trust me, you don't want that company. People, people think that the certainty of their unforgiveness is less damaging 
than the freedom that is on the other side of it. Well, it's just letting them get away with it. This is Papa. Nobody gets away with anything. Right? And it's not because God is punitive and retributive. God is redemptive. And guess what? God is a furious fire that is always for us. Always for the human being and is opposed to anything that hurts them. I'm all for God's fury. But I now believe that that fury is always for me, not against me. This is a God who is a burning fire, who, who burns away everything that is not true or real without touching the things that are true and real. And sometimes when you go through that process, you think that everything is going to be burned up. And you find out that on the other side, there were things that were actually true about you the whole time, but were so covered over by the lies you couldn't, dis- you couldn't distinguish between the things were, which were lies and the things which were true. Forgiveness is something you can do. You're invited into this journey, right? To let go of that which has been the prison that you've now called your sanctuary, right? Forgiveness is powerful. Last story. Uh, I met a woman who is a, she's a military nurse. She she did a tour, a couple tours in Afghanistan, and she would volunteer for the uh, airships, the helicopters that would, uh, would go into the most dangerous places. And the reason is that she wanted to die. She wanted, you know, because suicide is not something that is sort of legit, but if somebody kills you, right? It's the crazy way we think, you know. When the, when the, when the Roman Catholic Church introduced um, suicide as a, as a mortal sin, that is, that there wasn't forgiveness for, they did it because there were so many suicides that they were losing income, right? I'm serious. If you go back into the history of where, you know, suicide as a mortal sin came from, and, um, and you know, institutions, they don't have, they're not living, so they, they don't have any life to them, Right? They exist because of money. And in eternity, there won't be any institutions. You do realize that. Like, right, thank God, right? So, you know, it's just like religious systems. God, God is not a religious being. God doesn't come up with religion as an ideology, right? He doesn't come up with politics. Politics aren't God's idea. You know, we introduce a city, so he introduces a city. You know, we want a king... He goes, fine, I will submit to it, but it's really not a good idea, right? So I'm going to give you a king that is of totally a different nature than the one that you think you need, right? I mean, this is God constantly climbing into our religious and ideological and political nonsense and crafting something different. So she wants to die, and in Afghanistan, somebody gives her a copy of the shack, And she works through the section on forgiveness. And it is so confrontational to her. She's like, she realizes, I've got to forgive my dad. Because here was her deal. From the time she was a little girl to the time she was a teenager, her dad, and she called him my dad's brother, her uncle, sexually abused her regularly. And it was so dismantling to her that, that she had become a nurse to try to offset the shame she felt. She needed to do something good. 
and she'd become a nurse, but she wanted to die because of the devastation of this history. Well, she's just gone through the reading of the shack, and she gets a, uh, an email from stateside. Dad is in the hospital. He's dying, and you're the nurse in the family. We think that you should come home and take care of him while he dies. And she thinks, this is God working to help me forgive my dad. So she comes stateside to take care of him. And by the time she gets to his bedside, he's in a coma. And she waits for a couple days because a lot of times people that are in a coma, they come out of it um, right before they pass or shortly before they pass. Um, uh, we just went through a loss in our family. Uh, one of our daughter-in-law's mother, um, the mother of four of our grandchildren, the grandmother of four of our grandchildren, um, uh, passed away, um, uh, brain cancer. And a uh, funny, f- funny woman, Margot, loves Jesus. Um, so <laughs> I got to tell you this because it's so f- funny. And, and I think we need to begin to laugh a lot more at death than we do, right? Because I don't think death's all that big a deal. Um, it's a big deal to us because it feels like it's the end of the world. But it's really not. <laughs> Jesus didn't like calling death, death. He liked calling it falling asleep, right? For a reason. Because we've made it into such a big monolithic thing. We don't even think that you have an ability to choose on the other side of it. Death defines the whole universe, including the love of God. So won't go there, but it's kind of a big thought. So, so... One of Margot's daughters, one of Courtney is our daughter-in-law, one of her sisters, has had a little bit of an estranged relationship with her mom, and so, you know, came to the bedside and was wanting to have a moment with her mom, with Margot. And it's like, Mom, I don't want there to be anything between us. Is there anything that you want to say to me, that you want to tell me? And Margot goes... Like that I'm a serial killer? <laughs> That's funny, right? This is the same Margot that when, her, when Peter, her husband, is discons- disconsolate, he's just so sad, Margot goes, what, you feeling a little sorry for yourself? You need a little encouragement? This is, this is Margot. Come on. So anyway, my friend gets to the bedside of her dad, and he doesn't come out of the coma. He goes deeper into it. And there's scales, like there's one that goes to 15. And, um, and he's dropping deeper into the coma, and she knows he's not coming out. So she pulls at 2 o'clock in the morning, she pulls up a, a chair next to the bed, takes his hand, and says, Dad, I'm here to ask for both of our forgiveness. And she starts at the beginning of her list. You did this to me. And because of this, I've never been able to have a relationship with a man. I've never been able to trust. And, and she goes, I mean, she goes through this litany. You did this. You did this. And she goes through her entire list. And then she starts over. And she said, Dad. And she names it. For this, I forgive you. For this, I forgive you. And starts going through it piece by piece. And she says, I'm about five minutes into my list And I look up and tears are flooding down my father's face. Not just a little trickle. He is weeping and he never comes out of the coma. 
And she says, there is nobody on the planet that could tell me that powerful things did not happen during this time. Sometimes it means that you got to grab a couple of your friends and you got to put an empty chair and you got to declare to that chair, this is what you did. You got to put the person in the chair and say, this is what you did and this is the results of what you did and I let you go. I forgive you. Jesus says, I never say anything unless I hear the Father say it. That's not dictation. That's relationship. Right? And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it. What is the Father saying, son? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. People who don't know what they're doing hurt people. Broken people break people, right? And so part of this whole question of forgiveness is that you say, look, my dad, I know a lot about his brokenness now that I didn't know when I was a child. He didn't know what he was doing. He was out of his real mind. He didn't know his authentic person. He still doesn't. He knows it better than he did. But we still don't have father-son conversations. Right? Our story is not over. There is a process here. And this is the invitation that I'm saying tonight. Whatever that stuck place is, let it go. Right? You don't need it. Yeah, but freedom feels so scary. Now, let me tell you, freedom feels irresponsible, right? But the freedom and the cost of freedom is way less than the cost of the bondage that you continue to keep yourself inside of. Yeah, that means you've got to trust that there is a God who is good, who knows how to work things out. And yeah, it ticks you off that God wants to love that person too, right? There's some part of us is like, but I know if I forgive them, you're going to love them. What do you mean? I already love them. Right? But I'm not letting them get away with it. Sin is devastating. Brokenness is devastating. They don't know the truth of who they are. So I'm going to work to redeem it so that, these, so that nothing gets lost. Right? That is the goodness of a God who's involved in the details of our lives. A God who you can trust because this God is light. And in God, there is no darkness at all. There is no shadow of turning with thee. And this God loves you with relentless affection to the praise of his glory. Amen. 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 Thanks.